Good morning, Lincoln Avenue. Open up your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're going to continue in our series in the book of 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 3 today, Uh, picking up right where we left off. uh, Verse 19 is where we're going to be at. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 through 23 in the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 23. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Father, we ask for Your help today. God, we ask for Your help in uh, just listening and and, and focusing, hearing Your truth. Uh, Father, we just pray for Lynn, just asking God that You would uh, help her to get home safely and to be able to rest, to be at peace. We pray that You would bring Your peace into her, her heart and her life. God, we pray for us to rightly hear this word. God, help, help us to rightly interpret it. God, we know it's your word, and so we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to give us clarity, to give us illumination, to give us understanding, uh, to, to rightly hear it today. And Lord, help us not to be hearers only, but God, to be doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the the big keys in interpreting a passage of Scripture is context, okay? Context. Now, what context is, is what's John been talking about? What's he been talking about recently in this Scripture? And also, what's he been talking about in the whole book of 1 John, okay? So, right away when we read our passage, verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him, okay? And so, so John, we know, is really passionate about us knowing. If you're a born-again believer, here's what John wants for you. He wants you to be absolutely absolutely sure of your salvation. He wants you to be certain of what Jesus has done in your life. He wants you to be certain of what Christ is continuing to do in and through you, okay? If you're not a believer, okay, John doesn't want you to be confused about that. He doesn't want you to have some kind of false assurance putting your hope in something that you shouldn't put your hope in as your evidence of salvation. So that's a big deal to John. It's been a big deal the whole book. In in chapter 2, verse 3, so right on the first page of 1 John, you hear him saying this, by this we know that we have come to know him, okay? How do we know? How do we know? If we keep his commandments, all right? Go all the way to the end of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is talking about this in all five chapters, okay? He's talking about how do you know? How do you know you're the real thing? What are the marks of salvation? What are the real evidences that you know or you're connected, you're joined to Jesus Christ in salvation, all right? Now let's focusing on the immediate context, all right? So let's read again our first verse, verse 19. By this we shall know that we're of the truth. That's no, I'm a genuine believer. I'm connected to Jesus. He's in me. I'm in him. And reassure our heart before him, okay? Now here's the big question. What does that word this refer to, okay? So by this we shall know that we're of the truth. 
Well, what is this? Well, there's two choices here. Grammatically, if you're an English major, I think this makes sense to you. Okay, this either refers to what he just said or what he's about to say, right? I mean, that's that's good English, right? This either refers to what he's just said or what he's about to say. Now, actually, it's kind of both because what he just said, he's going to say again, all right? But, but, but I really think that John is referring to what he's just told us in this passage of Scripture, all right? So back up a little bit, okay? Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 3, looking at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay? So what, what, remember what John said there? There's two families on the earth. Okay? Two families on the earth. Children of God, children of the devil. And he says it's really obvious, it's evident, it's made clear who are of the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And it's based on what does their life look like? What has Jesus done in the life of a believer that makes them significantly different Okay, then then the life of an unbeliever. And he goes on to tell us, practicing righteousness, the one who loves his brother, okay? And remember last week, he knows that we're going to try to kind of use our own definition for those things, right? When we hear love your brother, we're all going to say, oh, yeah, man, I love my brother. Oh, yeah, I love all those folks at church. I don't really want to be around them much, but I love them, you know. I love everybody as long as they stay out of my way and don't make me mad. I love, right? We're going to try to use our own definition. And John says, no, no. Remember what he, he went through last week? He says, if if you've got hate in your heart, man, you're, you're, you, that, the, the love of God is not abiding in you. Okay, if you have this residual, continual, habitual hate for people, hate for someone, okay, unforgiveness, bitterness, you, you, you're a murderer at heart, you're like Cain, okay? He, he says if your kind of love is the love of word only and not deed and truth, you don't have Jesus' kind of love. Remember last week in verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's what Christ did for us. Jesus laid down his life to meet our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins and, and justification before God. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Okay, so I'm telling you that verse 19, by this we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. I think he's talking about what he just said. I think he's talking about being able to look in the rear view mirror of your life. And what do you see? You see that Jesus has changed you. You see that he's made, he's made you a different person. He's changed your wanter. Okay? I know it's not a real word, but it makes perfect sense to me that we have this, this, this mechanism of desire. And mine changed when I came to Christ. I didn't want to do the things I used to do. I, I, there, was a, there was a break that was made with sin. Am I saying that I don't sin at all anymore? No, I'm not saying that. John says, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. But I'm not a habitual sinner as I was. There's a break, a fundamental change that's happened in my relationship with sin. All right? And so John's saying, if you look in your life and you see, man, God has changed you. He's changed your will. He's changed your wants. He's changed your desires. He's changed your relationships with other people. If you look in, your, in the rearview mirror of your life and you say, man, God has, has helped me to love people. He's helped me to get in relationship. He's helped me to begin to care for people and, and to practice Christ-like love. Then John says, you ought to be able to know that you're of the truth. And then you ought to reassure your heart before him. I love the word reassure. It means to persuade, to convince, to win over. You ever, you ever watch those, those law shows? Anybody ever watch Matlock? That's the only one I can remember right now. You can see how I'm not very contemporary. Okay, I was like, what? hundred years ago, you know, but anyway, you know, he'll get up there and, and he'll convince the jury. You know, he, he lays out this persuasive argument. That's what that word means. Okay. And, and so John is saying by this, by this 
By, by, by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, here's a good way to think of it, by this, by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by the visible work of him in me, I can reassure my heart. I can convince my heart. I can, I can win over my heart that I belong to the truth. Okay, now, I think it's really important that we get that, okay? If we don't get that, we're going to be confused the rest of the message because here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to convince your heart that you're okay with unbiblical assurance. That's a dangerous thing. Okay, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to, to, for your heart to come in and it condemns you. That happens, right? You hear the word of God, you hear about sin, you hear about righteousness, you hear about judgment, your heart begins to get scared, you know, alarms are going off, okay, that, that's a human thing, we'll talk about that in a minute, it's called conscience, okay? What I don't want you to do is I don't want you to reassure your heart with unbiblical evidence. So when your heart condemns you, I don't want you to say, well, it's okay, it's okay, Whew. I've been baptized, it's okay. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, if, if there's not a spiritual transformation in your heart, then your baptism was just a public swimming exhibition, okay? That's all that was. I, I, I don't want you to say, you know, oh, man, my heart's condemning me. Am I really a Christian? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I prayed the prayer. You know, as if there's this magic, the prayer. You know, it comes in a spell book. You know, you pray it, wave the wand, bing, you know. No, that's, that's unbiblical evidence. I don't want you to say, well, you know, well, my heart's condemning me. Well, I'm a church member. Well, I'm a Sunday school teacher. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. That's all unbiblical evidence, okay? Paul or, or John is saying, by this we know, by this we know that we're of the truth. What is this? By, by, by the reality of Christ's work on the cross for us and the reality of his work in us being visible. He's changing me. He's bringing about righteousness in my life progressively, increasingly. He's changing the way I love people and the way I look at people. I see Jesus in my life. Next question. Why? Would a believer who sees visible evidence of Christ working in their life, why would they even need to convince their hearts? Why would they need to reassure their hearts? Okay, if you go a little further, it says, verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us. Whenever our heart condemns us. Why would would a born-again believer's heart condemn them? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, what does he mean by heart? I really think what he means by heart is he's talking about the mechanism inside of us that, that either condemns or excuses, accuses or, or, or excuses, okay? We would call it maybe conscience, right? That, it's a biblical term. Uh, John MacArthur, here's how he defines conscience, guilt-producing warning device given to every person to confront sin. It's biblical. It's in the Bible, okay? So Romans 12, here's what he says about uh, people that don't know Jesus, Oh, not Romans 12. I knew that was wrong when I said it. Romans 2. Romans 2, uh, verse 14, I believe. Yep. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So even though they don't have the word of God, they still have this mechanism in them that, that, that tells them right or wrong, okay? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay, so you're born with that, right? You're born with this mechanism that when you punch your brother in the nose and there's blood coming down his nose, you're like all of a sudden, that was wrong, right? Mom, I'm going to be in trouble. You know, here, clean that up, buddy. Hey, we're friends, aren't we? Don't tell mom, right? I mean, right, we, we, we immediately know, man, okay, that was wrong. All right, so we all have that natural mechanism. We have that condemnation of our hearts. But here's the reality. As a lost person, your conscience functions only moderately well to poor, Right? And sometimes, if you go against your conscience, it breaks all together. 
Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We see that in our society, by the way. We see people that, 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 that their consciences don't function at all. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Through the, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You, you see, what we, what we see happening in our world is people who, who have a sense of right and wrong, and then they push against that. They push against God's law. They push against morality. And, and they continue to push. Pretty soon they sear their conscience. It's like a person who grabs a hold of something hot. Yikes, you know? They have this natural mechanism in that says, man, pull back. And then they grab it again. And they grab it again. And they grab it again. They grab, What's going to happen pretty soon? No more feeling, right? No, no, their conscience gets seared. All right, and so, so what we see is that, that, that everybody has a conscience. However, the conscience of a believer is, is hopefully operating at a higher level because of two things, because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, okay? Romans chapter 9. Listen to how Paul talks about his conscience. Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, okay? So, so Paul not only relies on his conscience, but he says, my conscience is working with the Spirit of God. Now, now, if you're a believer, I think what you'll have seen in your life is your conscience develops according to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. There's things that never used to bother you as an unbeliever that when you become a believer, all of a sudden they bother you. I grew up in a family of three boys and uh, maybe the toughest mom there ever was, okay? If there was ever a mom that was meant to be a mom of three boys, it was my mom. I mean, she's just the sweetest lady ever, godly lady, uh, and she's just tough, you know? And we put her through a lot of just terrible stuff, you know? Um, before my dad was a Christian, uh, my mom's handle on the CB was Porky. That's what, you know, we had a harvest crew, and so all, there's all these guys, and that's, that's what they called my mom on the CB, and she's not a heavy lady, you know? And, but... She just was tough, you know? I mean, that's the kind of atmosphere that I grew up living in. You know, it was nothing for someone to get pantsed on Christmas morning, you know? All the relatives gathered in the living room. I mean, that's just kind of the, the, the joking kind of harshness that, that I kind of grew up with. Okay, now let me tell you what happened. When I got saved, see, that, that stuff never bothered me before. It was just, it's funny, right? It's funny. That's never bothered me. I'm reading in Ephesians 4 where, where the Bible says, put away all coarse jesting. You know what happened? My conscience adjusted. All of a sudden, I'd never seen that before. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know what? You got to be careful with people. You got to be careful. You, 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 can't, you can't be too harsh with people. You know, sometimes a joke, it's meant to be a joke, but sometimes it hurts them. All right? See, I, I, never, I, never, I never had that in me before. You know, and I know my family's over there saying, you still don't have it in you, Dad. You know? And I, I know I'm trying to grow. I'm, I'm growing. And I think my wife would even tell you I'm a lot. I mean, I'm a way different guy than I used to be in that area, right? But all of a sudden, what I'm telling you is, all of a sudden, I would, I would let go of these zingers now as a Christian, my heart would condemn me, and I would convict. What's that, what's that mean? Your conscience develops according to the Word of God and according to the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and so, so we're, again, we're trying to answer the question. Let me come back. We're, we're answering the question, why would a born-again believer, so we believe John's talking to believers here because he's telling us we will know that we're of the truth, okay? We're, we know that we're genuine believers. How are we going to know that? Because we're growing in righteousness, because we're children of God, because we, we have a genuine love for the brother, because we're loving people in practical, Jesus-like ways, okay? So why would we, verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, why would our heart still condemn us, right? You would think as born-again believers, we would have trouble with a condemning heart anymore, right? Well, we do. A couple reasons. We still sin, okay? Hopefully differently. Hopefully we're progressing in right, but we do still sin. And second of all, 
Second of all, we're closer to God. Okay? Let me, understand, let me unpack what I, what I just said. Here's my pastoral experience. The closer you get to God, the more active your heart is. You know, as I think about the people that I've counseled who struggle with their salvation, I have people that come in, they're agonized over it. Man, they're just like, Pastor, I'm in tears. Pastor, I just, you know, I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to trust Him. I'm trusting the blood of Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to live right. But I just get this, you know, this condemnation that I'm not really a believer and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not living good enough. You know, my experience is most of the time, and again, I can't see anybody's heart just like you can't, but most of the time, they look like Christians to me. I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced they are. Okay? Who I worry about are the people that I talk to and I don't see any visible fruit in their life. I don't see that they're growing in righteousness. I don't see that they love their brother. I don't see that they have a Jesus kind of love in them. And when I talk to them about spiritual things, you know what they say? I'm fine, Pastor. Don't you worry about me. Me and God, just like this. We're, we're great. I got my own deal with God. You know, I'm fine. You go, you go worry about those other people. Yeah, I worry about that guy. Okay, because I think there's a biblical principle that, that the closer you come to God, I think the more you see your sin. All right, so again, I'm answering the question, why would a believer who's of the truth, why would his heart condemn him? Well, again, he's still a sinner and he's drawn near to God. What's, what's the picture of people who come into God's presence in the Bible? What, what happens? Isaiah comes into God's presence, right? Into the throne room of God. What happens to me? Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, man. He's like, ah, I can't be here, right? What happens with Peter when, when he first realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, when Jesus does that miracle? Remember what he says? Get away from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips. What happens to John? We get the writer of this epistle, by the way. When he sees the glory of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. i got to read that to you. This is awesome. Ready? The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. How does John respond? to that when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead I always get a kick out of all these folks who say man when I get to God I'm going to ask him a bunch of questions yeah (laughs) while your face is on the pavement (laughs) (laughs) to be in the presence of the Lord to be standing in his blazing holiness brings us a sharp awareness of our own unworthiness doesn't it so why as believers might our heart condemn us? And, and again, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, I, 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 think, I think what I'm afraid of, I, I pitched this sermon to some other people, they were afraid of the same thing. They're afraid that, that, that what people are going to hear is, you, let's say you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and what you're going to hear is, well, my heart condemns me, but I, pastor said I just need to ignore that. No, not at all, okay? Not at all. I mean, if you look back in your life and you don't see a growing righteousness, you don't see faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, you know, a genuine trusting in, in His work for you, if you don't see a love for the brother and an increasing, you know, Christ, then, then you ought to, you, you can't reassure your heart, okay? We, we've already been through that. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we're the truth and reassure our heart, okay? But once, once, you, once you see that and you know you're a believer and you know that Christ is in you, okay, then, then when your heart condemns you, that's when John's telling you how to respond. 
So I think, I think believers' hearts still condemn us because we're still sinners, and, and, and we feel all the more unworthy because we're in the presence of God. Add to that, what is Satan doing to believers? What's his strategy with believers? First of all, what's his strategy with unbelievers? I really think his strategy with unbelievers is, you're fine, buddy. Hey, you are better than most of those Christians over there. Man, they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? I mean, I, I think that's what Satan does to unbelievers. What is Satan's strategy with believers? Well, Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. Who are the brethren? Believers. What's he do? He accuses. There's a great picture of this in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's what Satan does, doesn't he? You're a sinner. You're filthy. I know your past. I know what you've done. I know your thoughts. I know who you are. Who are you kidding? That's what he does, isn't he? He's an accuser. And so, so, so here's, here's kind of a reality that we got to realize that factor into this. You can't always trust your heart. Okay? Believers, you understand that? You can't always trust your heart. Man, that, that's something to really grab onto. Sometimes our heart betrays us, okay? Sometimes your heart tells you all is lost when God's about to bless you amazingly. Have you ever been in that situation? You know, throwing up your hands, you know, it's all lost, you know. Have you ever been in a spot where your heart tells you that you're abandoned, you're forsaken, you're alone? But that's not the scriptural reality. It's not true at all. Sometimes your heart tells you to despair and to doubt and to condemn when, when there's not scriptural reason to do so. Sometimes even though the word of God and, and the and and the, and the story of Christ tells you you are forgiven of your sins when we say things like, I can't forgive myself. That's why I think the psalmist teaches us that sometimes you've got to preach to yourself. Sometimes you've got to preach to yourself. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Who's he talking to? Who's his congregation? He's his congregation. His heart is his congregation. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation of my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. He's preaching to himself. He's talking to his heart. So I believe this passage is speaking to believers who have the, the visible evidence of Jesus' work in their lives. And he's saying there are going to be times where your heart condemns you, and when your heart condemns you, then what do you do? Well, let's see what John tells us to do, okay? So by this, verse 19, we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, okay? Now, what is he teaching us there? God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart, okay? I've heard people talk about this, and they talk about this kind of in a completely different direction. It's true, but I don't think it's what John's saying. They say when God says God is greater than, or when this says God is greater than your heart, they're saying, man, you think you know your sin? Man, God knows a lot more than you do, which is true, right? I mean, I don't even know all my sin. That's how broken we are, right? But I don't think that's encouraging. I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't flow with the passage. I think when he says God is greater than our heart, he's saying what God has done in Christ is greater than our heart. Okay, let's review. What do we know about 1 John? 1 John 1, 9. If, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we have sin? Yes. Verse 8 says we do. But if we confess it, God is greater than our hearts. Okay? He's able to forgive us our sins. Why? Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We've got a lawyer. We've got a mediator. We've got an intercessor. Somebody who stands between us and God and represents us represents us to God, represents us on behalf to our Father. Verse 3, and we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commands. I'm sorry, verse 2, He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the world. I think he's saying God's greater than our hearts. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Romans 8 is a great passage, by the way. It's so encouraging. It starts out in verse 1 saying, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? And look all the way. It goes all the way through Romans 8, building this case. And then it ends in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge? against God's elect, okay? Who's going to be the accuser against those who, 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 who are God's elect? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Again, verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. It troubles me to hear Christians, people who claim to have grabbed onto the, the saving death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith, it troubles me to hear you say, I can't forgive myself. That's a troubling thing. I, 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 think, you need, I think you need to verse 19. You should know that you're of the truth and reassure your heart. How? By what Christ has done for you on the cross, by the visible evidence of Jesus' work in your life. Okay? And then you should embrace that fully. How can you say, Jesus might be able to forgive me, but I can't forgive me? What, what are you saying there? Are, are, are you saying that, that there's something deficient in what Jesus did for you? Are you saying that his death was not enough to cover your sins? It wasn't enough to take him away? Are you saying he didn't suffer long enough? He was up there six hours. If he'd done seven or eight, then maybe you could feel forgiven. Are you saying that, that there wasn't enough blood spilt on the cross to pay for your sins? Are you saying that you're bad at a level higher than Jesus is good? Are you saying that the glorious death of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, was not enough for you? God is greater than our hearts. Do you hear that? Are you applying that? So you're a born-again believer. You're able to look back. You're able to see the visible evidence of Jesus in your life. He's changing you. He's transforming you. You know He's in you. Okay, When your heart condemns you, John's saying God is greater than your heart. The gospel is greater than your heart. See, John's goal is that you not live in this haze of self-doubt. John's goal is for you not to be in this constant, you know, am I a Christian? Am I really? Does God really love me? Is he really taking away my sins? Folks, those people are never very effective in the Christian life. Here's what I know about those folks. They don't draw near to God. People that are Christians that are living in this self-doubt, always beat down, kind of accused all the time. Those aren't Christians who run to God. Those aren't Christians who want to be in the presence of God. Why would you? The closer you get, the more you see your sin, right? And if you don't have the, this gospel encouraging your heart, reassuring your heart, then you're not going to want to draw near. 
I mean, imagine if every time you went to your refrigerator, you got shocked with 200 volts. Pretty soon you'd be like, what? I'm going on a diet, man. I'm going around now. I ain't going to try. So if every time you draw near to God, all you see is your sin, all you see is you're unworthy, your mess-ups, your mistakes, I'm not good enough, I'm not good as this person. Well, pretty soon what, what we find in those people is they, they're not very bold. They're not very courageous in the faith. They're not very stepping out there for Jesus. And so I think what John's telling us here, God is greater than our hearts. God knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What should be on the windshield of your life? It should be the gospel. It should be what Christ has done for you. It should be how Christ is changing you. It shouldn't be your worries. It shouldn't be your struggles. It shouldn't be your disappointments. It shouldn't be your failures. It shouldn't be your sinful past. Those things should not be your home screen. Okay? The gospel, Christ's work on the cross, should be what what comes up in your life. Now, if it does, what does that cause a man to do? I think this is John's point, by the way. I think this is where he's getting to. Prayer. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence. Do you have that? Do you want to run to Him? Just ask yourself that. Are you eager Are you eager to run to him? Are you eager to be in his presence? Are you eager? I'm not talking about the kind of prayer where we're just like, you know, our list, you know, got to pray for John, he's sick, and for Bill, he's struggling, and for Jim, he's this and that and that. Amen. No, I'm talking about the kind of prayer where you want to be in the presence of God. You want to linger there. You want to hear from him. You want to soak up his truth. You want to be in his presence. Listen, only folks who whose hearts don't condemn. Now, and again, what does that mean? Well, it says whenever our heart condemns us, okay, that's, we know it's going to happen. God is greater than our heart. We appropriate the gospel. And then, so we appropriate the gospel. We, we win the battle there. And then we have confidence before God. We have confidence. We want to run to Him. Here's my experience. People who feel like spiritual losers are not great prayer warriors. They're not great servants. Now, I hate to use that term, but I mean, I hear people tell me that. You feel like you're just a big disappointment to God? And, and, and let's back up. I, that, that's kind of true, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't it? It's true of me. I, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that knocks it out of the park 100% of the time. I mean... You'd think for what Jesus did for me, man, I'd be, okay? And so I'm not, I'm not saying it's, in other words, what I'm trying to do is I don't, I don't want you to like be this person that excuses your sin. No, I'm not telling you that. I, I'm, I'm saying when you sin, let's do what John's already told us to do. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. As, as we come to him, as, as we as we embrace the cross, as we embrace what he's done, and then we're eager to get to God, and as we're eager to get to God, we're, we're confident in our spiritual life, and we begin to step out, and we begin, to, we begin to grow. You see, the man who's eager to be in the presence of God, what happens? That, that, guy, that guy receives grace and goodness from God. Look at verse 22. 
Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That guy begins to pray effectively. Do, do you see the uh, do you see the the qualifications of effective prayer there? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. What commands, you ask? Man, I'm glad you asked that. Verse 23. This is his commandment. We believe in the name, the character, the person of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he's commanded us. You know, if, you, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that John, and by the way, those of you who study Revelation, I'm not a scholar of Revelation, but this is probably the most important thing I could tell you. Everywhere you read John, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, he always operates in a circular fashion. Remember that. Some, as Americans, what do we think? You, when you start the book, you start at the beginning, and then you go chronologically, right? I'm just telling you, John never does that, okay? That will affect the way you look at Revelation, by the way, okay? But, but if you'll notice 1 John, he circles, doesn't he? He circles back around. You know, like today, you're probably talking, man, we've talked about this love one another thing before, haven't we? Yeah, chapter 2, chapter 3, you know. Next week, or two weeks, we're going to hit it again, chapter 4, okay? I mean, John does that, okay? And, and I want you to notice, he circles here as well, okay? So, so when you follow the thought, okay, so, so he's saying, all right, in verse 19, those of us who look back and we see the visible evidence of Jesus' work in our life, we're obeying his commands, we're loving our brother. That gives us confidence, eagerness, I got to get to God. I want to pray. I want to call out. I want to have faith. And then he says, and your prayers are effective when you're obeying his commands and you're loving your brother. Oh, didn't we just come from there? Yeah, we did. We're right back around again, aren't we? And the more you obey his commands and love your brother, the more confidence you have and eagerness to come to God. And your prayers are effective as you obey his commands and love your brother. Now, now see, what about when you throw a wrench in that, though? What, What about when you're not loving your brother well? What happens then? What happens when you're not loving with Jesus kind of love? It's going to affect your prayers, isn't it? It's going to affect your confidence to come before God, your eagerness. To, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm living in disobedience, I'm not real eager to be in the presence of God. Right? So if I'm not loving my wife, well, you know, she does something, makes me mad. And so now I'm like, all right, what you're getting from me is silence. And grunts, you know. How's your day, hon? Bye. That's all you're getting. I'm punishing you. Okay, what does that do to my prayer life? I'm, I don't have Jesus' heart. That, that's where you get effective prayers. When you're obeying his commands and loving your brother, you have his heart. You have his heart. And, and, I mean, John tells us that over and over again. In the Gospel of John, John 14, 13, 14, John 15, 17, 16, 7 and 16, John 16, 23 and 24, all those say the same thing. When, when you abide in him and he abides in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. I mean, it's all that sort of thing, okay? And so, so if, if, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not loving him well, well, 1 Peter 3, 7 says it well. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, love, live with your wives in an understanding way, uh, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they're heirs of you, the grace of life, so that, what? Your prayers may not be hindered. If I'm not loving her well, I don't have his heart. Right? If I'm saying all you're getting from me is silence and grunts, I don't have his heart. And if I don't have his heart, I'm not praying effectively. I'm not eager to come before him. 
Because my heart will condemn me. And we'll come right back around, don't we? So where's your heart today? Where's your heart? Maybe some of you, as you look in the rearview mirror of your life, you don't see, you don't see a couple things. You don't see that you have faith in Jesus, in His death, His burial, His resurrection. You're not trusting, you're not leaning. That's, that's not the center of your life. And as you examine more, you see that you're not growing in obedience to His commands. You don't have His heart. You, you don't want what He wants. You're not loving people like Jesus loved them. You don't treat people like Jesus did. You, you have things like bitterness and anger that are just residual parts of your life. Your conscience should be condemning you today. As you hear the Word of God, you should have a mechanism inside of you that's condemning you. The Spirit of God should be convicting you. Oh, I pray that's happening. Man, I pray you're miserable. That's a terrible thing to pray, isn't it? No, it's a good thing to pray. I pray you're miserable. I pray that that, that, that miserableness, that, that feeling of being separated from God would lead you to a Savior. And you'd, you'd recognize that Jesus is your King. He, he's your atoning sacrifice. He died in your place. And you can grab on to Him today by faith. Maybe you're a believer here today. You're not perfect because none of us are. But you can look in your life and you can see the visible fruit of Christ growing you in righteousness and love for brother and you're striving to have his heart. But maybe, maybe you, you have this heart that's always, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You haven't done it all right. Maybe you got that voice, Satan's voice. You're trash. People only knew where you come from. People only knew what you've done in your past. And you need to realize God is greater. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is greater than that voice. And you need to receive what he's done for you. And man, as you do that, I'll tell you how you're going to know it's real. You're going to want to be near him. You see, if, 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 if here's a good check, okay? If, if embracing the gospel causes you to want to sin more, if that's where you go, you know, you're like, man, Jesus died for my sins. Sweet. Done with that. Let's go sin more. You don't have it. You do not have it. Okay? Embracing the cross ought to make you say, man, I want more of him. I want more of him. Man, that is so awesome. I want more. I want to be near him. I got confidence to come before him. And I want to be like him. I want to have his heart. Get his heart today. Let's pray. God, we ask that you'd help us today. God, we ask that uh, you would help us, help our hearts to function according to your word, according to your spirit. I pray that the gospel would be right at the center of our lives. God, I, I just pray that you would apply this word, God, in exactly the way it needs to be applied in each and every heart, God, in this room. Please, Father, do the work of the spirit. Do your work in us deeply. God, give us boldness, give us confidence, give us an eagerness to, to be near you, to be with you, to be close to you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name.